operational discipline is important. And that's something that I was reflecting on was like, could I have pushed people to do that faster and not them hang around the hoop with bad customer selection? Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Ao, venture capitalist, Sierra founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 40,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.bravesea.com. Stay well and stay brave. Are you expanding or launching a business in the Philippines? Ensuring your employees' good health is key to attracting and retaining top talent. That's where Hive Health comes in, especially for startups and small to medium-sized businesses. They specialize in providing top quality and hassle-free healthcare plans tailored to your workplace. Learn more at www.ourhivehealth.com. Hey, Shuyen, Happy New Year. What a start to 2024. Happy New Year. Our roles are reversed. You're calling (laughs) us in the U.S. this time. I'm sitting in Singapore. Yeah, it's been amazing to have this one-month break with the two kids, my wife and I, exploring the snow letting them play and build a snowman and hopefully get a ski class in for them. So it will be interesting to see the experience. How about you? How's your break? It's pretty good. We did some skiing with the kids in Oregon, early yeah. season conditions. I think they're really taken to it. The feedback on my son was he knows how to turn. He just chooses not to. So you just <laughs> bomb straight down the hill. Sorry, that sounds like every like executive committee strategy meeting. Like we do know how to turn and change direction. We just don't want to. <laughs> so I thought that was pretty funny. And then they bring the kids to a steeper slope to force them to turn basically because they oh, get boy. scared to bomb yeah. down when it's too steep. So there's probably some life analogy there somewhere. Which is like you're going to face bigger and harder trials and then you have to learn how to do product market fit iteration and pivot. It's twists and turns to life, right? Not everything <laughs> is a straight line. Yeah. So speaking about not everything is a straight line, I think we wanted to cover what our reflections were for 2023 and a little bit of looking ahead to some of the current news, but also what we think about 2024 in the coming year. Because lots of people ask us, oh, what's going to happen this year? So figured might be fun just to chill and chat. So how do you feel about 2023? First of all, I think I'm shocked that we've done a whole year of podcasting. It feels like not that long ago that you pinged me to say, hey, want to do this news show thing with me? And I was like, yeah, let's give it a shot, see what happens. And then I actually, at the end of the year, I had some downtime and I went back and looked at all the stuff we did together. And we actually recorded 39 episodes together, which I think is pretty amazing on a 52 week year with holidays and everything, right? That's a pretty full time recording schedule. And I know you did hundreds so this is just a drop in the bucket for you i thought it was a good exercise to get over my fears of public broadcasting and to have a regular cadence and i think i was actually pretty surprised by some of the feedback like the topics that people are interested in what they enjoy the range of people who listen to us i think i was also pretty surprised by and so that's been like both gratifying and terrifying but um yeah i don't know this is sort of live on the air we haven't rehearsed any of this so like jeremy how did it go for you what grade do you give us to be ultra 
Singaporean. It's like, look back at the past year is not sufficient unless we grade ourselves. I would say that if we were to give ourselves a grade, I think the grade that we had would be certified fresh. I guess using the Rotten Tomatoes grading. What I learned recently was that the Rotten Tomatoes, the scoring isn't like how good a quality of it. So it's like, you know, when you say 70%, doesn't mean that it, the quality is 70%. What it means is that there's 70% chance that you enjoy the show. And I thought that was a nice way of saying it, which is the same way of how we say it. there's an 80% chance of rain doesn't mean that it's like the intensity of the rain, right? And so I think I've always think about it in a sense that I've always enjoyed our conversations. And so if I'm enjoying a conversation and we're both talking about the fact that we're both like domain experts in Southeast Asia about tech, venture capital and leadership and I think news of the day, then if it works for us, then hopefully it works for a good group of folks. And I think it was quite interesting to also do that reflection review. And my reflection was that I'm really glad that the experiment worked out, that people do enjoy our random conversations, our banter, and also our point of views. And also I'm really thankful for you for being like the first person to ever jump on and say like, hey, you know what? I'm game to try this co-hosting gig. And so it's been fun to have that ride with you over the past year. Oh, are we having a moment, Jeremy? I feel so touched. <laughs> yeah, well, why not? You can have them open. On that note, we wanted to talk about the big things that also happened in 2023. I think that there was a lot of shaking out of the overall like portfolios for VCs, right? So it's kind of like assembling, redoing the budget, pivoting, so so forth. Now on the founder side, I think a lot of readjustment to the actual funding environment that kind of kicked in hard in 2022. So I think that was the big news and I think there's some big M&A news and so, so forth. I'm just curious when you look ahead for the next year, what you think is coming around the corner? I think the reality check continues to come in hard and fast, right? So yeah. for the later stage companies, if they survive 2023, I think it's more of the same. It's either you need to really grow into your evaluation to raise an up round or you need to do significant cuts to plus grow in order to stay alive. But I don't know. It's an interesting thing, right? I think about this a lot. I did a bunch of postmortems over break as well, writing up learnings from different portfolio companies. And the premise of venture capital is that you do a bunch of upfront investment because on the back end, you have a bunch of high marginal revenue, low marginal cost sales, whether that's SaaS or in the old days, semiconductor chips or whatever it is. It's just the timing of the investment, right? You invest because you're going to reap this benefit later. And for a while, when the fundraising was easy, later just seemed really far away. Like you didn't have to show that you were actually getting operating leverage on a business. Mm -hmm. And now, as things have slowed down, later is now. You need to show results now. And I feel like that's an interesting sort of psychological trick that people play on themselves where it's like, yeah, eventually that businesses need to make money. And so then it's like, well, how long did you think you had to prove that thing? And why did you think that you had longer or shorter and whatever it is, right? And when I looked at some businesses in our portfolio that went sideways, they weren't bad businesses, but they ran out of time. Even though they had transformed their businesses within 12 months, it wasn't enough. And it made right. me ask the question, if they had done it 12 months earlier, could they have made it? And these are businesses that have raised $10, $20 million. So all, all those things continue to be true in 2024. And I think for companies starting today, they have a much more realistic picture of how much time do I have to show that I can do that? No one's going to give me multiple rounds and pots of money to keep setting on fire. Yeah, I've also received several shutdown notices over the past three months. I think it was the end of the year. People want to wrap things up. And I also got the opportunity to 
catch some conversations with them to hear about this. I think my interest on this is in two levels. One, of course, is the strategic side, like the product market fit, what are the lessons? And then I guess a spin-off of that is, is there something I could have done differently as investor or advice? Or is there something I could have seen earlier in terms of tradecraft? So these are kind of like dynamic there. Now, for the other side, is maybe more from a coaching perspective because I run the Phoenix Founders event where we have an offsite for founders in transition. So I'm more like coaching them and helping them navigate to the next chapter to professional careers. I think it's been interesting because on the strategy side, it feels a little bit more straightforward set of lessons because it's like we could have been more lean, we could have operated faster, we could have pivoted earlier, we could fundraise more money. So I think it feels like that stuff feels relatively clearer in terms of knowledge. I think there's a big of, of a black box to me personally in terms of investor craft, right? which is like a set of assumptions around verticals, geographies, founder attributes, and so, so forth, and even what the right role for the VC is with them, right? And so I think this box of it is actually still in disequilibrium. Is still not settled. I, I don't even know how to get to that finish line. So I, I still I haven't finished processing that chunk of it. And I think the last thing is yeah, as in you shouldn't have done the deal to begin with. I think so. I, mean, I think the other aspect of it is like you said is when could I have stepped in or is there something I could have done more of or less of? And so I think that's the interesting dynamic. I reflect on that second question a lot because I think that there were a number of times that I said to people, hey, we should look sooner at monetization or we should focus more. And I think you kind of get a mixed reception to that because the founder is getting a lot of really positive feedback in the market from their top line growth or their fundraising. And then you're like this other voice. It's like, hey, hey, maybe we should look at this thing. And they're kind of like, uh, you don't believe in my vision or like, this is for later. You don't look, I'm going to do this thing first. So it really depends on how good your relationship is with that founder. And, but also like the cacophony of other data that they're receiving from the market about whether they're on the right track or not. And I think in the boom time of fundraising, you feel super validated when people are throwing money at you. Yeah. So that's like a hard, I, I, I don't know. I ask myself that question a lot, right? Which is like, what could I have done differently? And I think the interesting part about, I think for a lot of VCs that I talk to in a, in a market is that you're not necessarily rewarded for doing this structural reflection. And what I mean by that, of course, is that as a GP, you're obviously rewarded for the right deals, whether you had false positives or false negatives and being thoughtful about both of them. I think for a lot of folks who are kind of like mid middle or junior, a lot of the incentives is really about getting more deals through because they're compensated on the deal by deal carry perspective or they want to build out that investment track record. And so there's an interesting dynamic where that structural reflection is not necessarily happening at a peer-to-peer -peer level or even on a team level. So I think that would be my personal challenge to myself. But I think that would be a personal challenge to a lot of folks in the ecosystem to be like, how do you have that awkward but really frank conversation to be like, okay, let's do a debrief and after action review. Every failure has multiple points of failure, right? All the way from A to B to C to D. How do we understand as a multi cause to it and how aware could we have stepped in. I think that process of debrief is really important and I'm only just starting on that process. So that's how I think about it. I think that's right. But I guess if you bucket the failure drivers, I think there's like, did we pick the wrong person? Would we have known that or not? Did we pick the wrong market? Right. So you've learned more about the market as the thing went on. You're like, oh, actually, this is a crappy market. Or like basically there was a strategic decision along the path of the company that we kind of went down the wrong way and then closed off a bunch of options to ourselves. So I think people generally don't want to say they picked the wrong person or market. Yeah. But I think it's a useful reflection. There are some markets that are just really tough. And I guess I think of it as how many degrees of freedom do you have? How many things can you get wrong? And there are some markets where 
the margin is so thin that it's hard to be wrong repeatedly. Yeah. There's no margin of error, basically. And so then it's like the execution has to be perfect. The team has to be perfect. And it's perfection is hard and probably impossible. But the people thing is really hard because sometimes it's like, oh, yeah, this person was really great zero to one. But then they didn't scale. And in a founder-friendly market, they don't get replaced. And so then you end up in this morass. Yeah. So let's look at what else we think is going to happen. Predictions for 2024. I'll start out first. I would say that the big two pivot points would be for the Taiwan election that's coming up very soon in Q1 for 2024. And the second would be the US elections in November this year. I think both of these are really important decisions that we made by the respective populations. But because both of them really impact the U.S.-China relations. And I think the decisions around globalizations, trade rules, tax sectors, trade barriers and flows, especially for Southeast Asia, which is at the crossroads of that trade between East and West. So I think that would be the things that I'll be watching very carefully for 2024. How about you, Xian? Yeah, I, I think those are big macro events. I think the other thing that I'm watching and, and maybe not as sort of a global event is I'm curious to see how fundraisers work for funds. So I think there are a bunch of funds coming up on their fund three and the fund twos were largely raised off of paper markups in fund one. And I think a lot more LPs are impatient for DPI. And so I'm kind of curious to see how those fund threes go. Yeah. On that note, I want to say congratulations to Asia Partners for raising and closing their final close at $474 million. So closing a fund two in this market, and I can't imagine what it was like to fundraise over the course of the past 12 months to get there, must have been torturous. I mean, with all the market changes and conditions. I think this is a very much needed dimension. I think Nick Nash was a previous guest on the Brave Podcast, so you can find the episode earlier. There's a big part of the story. There is a need for more growth stage capital, especially for Series A, Series B, Series C in Southeast Asia because of the retreat of the US funds, growth funds were operating more aggressively in Southeast Asia in 2020 and 2021. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a need for more growth stage companies. Like we need to get more companies to that stage. They got to do... 20, 30 million of revenue. We can't only operate in the realm of the sub $5 million company. Chicken and egg problem in many ways, right? Because from the founder perspective, it's like, we don't have enough growth stage capital to get there. And then vice versa, VCs are like, hey, there aren't enough growth stage companies. No, but I think that goes back to the capital efficiency question. What is your dollars raised relative to gross profit generated over the lifetime of this business? Like, what's the ratio? Like, if you raise 10 million bucks and you've only ever generated a million dollars in gross profit, like, that doesn't seem very capital efficient. Then it's more than the words like, well, there's something wrong with your business. Not, I need more money. Well, you, you could make the argument from the founder's perspective, and I met a few of them, is that their board has been pushing them to grow faster because they thought that there was going to be this growth stage capital available. And so it's like you're being asked to run and then suddenly you find out there's a brick wall or a giant hole, I guess. Sure. But I mean, at the end of the day, did you start a company to make money or you start a company to raise money? Well, and hopefully if you're listening to this podcast, now they know. Ash, no, I mean, you know, obviously you start a company to make money, right? And so it's like, well, when do you make money? And, and how, what's your theory on how you make money and how you make money consistently and durably? I think that matters. And so I just, I'm old fashioned. Right. I think the biggest takeaway personally, I spent a lot of time working with founders is really working on the unit economic slide because one way of thinking about it is like, how do you frame it up for fundraising? But it's actually a distillation of how you think, how you make money and what experiments you need to get there. And I said that one company I remember about a year ago and I was just like, hey, this is totally uninvestable from my perspective, but you may be able to get investor money, but you have to focus on the monetization piece because there's so many assumptions that we have here, but we can't just grow usage with the hope that we can lay on a monetization product and so forth. And 
I wish to say that was the only person I talked like that about, but there were hundreds of companies that basically had that layered set of assumptions and milestones that was tricky for people to understand and for the market to believe. Yeah, I mean, unit economics is super important. Of course, when you start out, the unit economics don't look great, right? Like when you start, you're still figuring a bunch of stuff out. But one of my favorite founders, it's more that he had a consistent plan to improve margins. He's focused on it. He said, like, look, this is the current state of my business. Here's where I think I can improve it to on a margin perspective. And and he has margin improvement initiatives that are separate from his revenue growth initiatives. So he's like, I am trying to move a lever and I am focused on it. And he has a slide and then he delivers. And then the next quarter we meet and he's like, OK, look, I did these things and I still think there's room to improve margin. And we're going to go do these things. And it's so important and not enough people do it, right? Not enough people actually pay attention to margins. And they just like, hey, I, I grew this thing or I added some customers. You're like, OK, good. How profitable are those customers? What's the retention look like? Are they good? customers are bad customers. And I think that's another place where people get tripped up. We've talked about this before, like customer selection and segments is, of course, in the beginning, you're just trying to figure out who your segments are, right? So you like have some mishmash of customers. But if you don't deliberately try to understand this is a good customer, this is a bad customer, and you don't fire your bad customers, you get confused. You're like, well, I'm adding customers. But you might actually be losing money on some of these customers. They might be giving you roadmap items that are not relevant to your good customers. Like there's so many ways that that ends up being like a terrible thing and you need to realize that sooner there's that sort of operational discipline is important and that's something that i was reflecting on was like could i have pushed people to do that faster and not them hang around the hoop with bad customer selection yeah so big fan of uh Dershing, who kind of wrote on his blog about what he's looking at for his outlook in 2024 so definitely check it out we'll link it out here the big thing that his perspective is that the recent specs and ipos from 2020 to now which include Park, grab money hero Prenetics, Live17. His point of view is that last round of private valuations are almost uh, 50 to 80% their current public valuation. So in other words, there's a big gap between private valuations versus the public markets. And so his perspective is that a lot of late stage companies are now caught in this dynamic. He thinks that there's going to be more bad news and there are going to be more corrections of late stage companies. Definition of late stage is obviously a bit fuzzy here, but he does believe that there's going to be more news coming out this year. Personally, I think I'm aware of about three companies that were very hot last year and uh, they are definitely struggling currently. And so it's kind of like known in the private news side that, you know, either it's going to be a massive down round or it's going to kind of liquidate. So I think that's the fact is, I think publicly, I think we'll see more of these bad news, I would think, in the coming year. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think on the sort of bad news, yeah, Lazada layoffs is a good one. I think that just happened. So people were doing corrections. And then I was going to highlight the Carta news over the weekend. So I think that was more like bad PR. If you guys know Carter, probably a lot of your customers, they do cap table management software as well as fund administration. And they had been launching a nascent secondaries market uh, product as well, which makes sense, right? You you know what everyone's holdings are. And so you're well positioned to basically provide a marketplace. But I think over the weekend, some CEO tweeted that one of his investors had gotten cold outreach from Carter saying like, hey, do you want to sell your shares? Which I think is an absolute no-no from a like, hey, are you using my private information to go solicit on behalf of your new product? And then the official explanation at first was like this was a rogue employee like overzealous rogue employee who went and did these cold outreaches but the conclusion was that carter then decided to shut down their their secondary market product which in the context of 
their other revenue lines was tiny. I think it was a $3 million product versus $200 million for cap table management and $100 million revenue for uh, fund admin. And so it kind of wasn't really worth the blowback that they were getting. But at the same time, I think it could have been handled better. So if you had sort of said to the companies, hey, we have this new product, it could be useful to you guys. Do you want us to let you know when people are putting offers up and you can engage? Then I think people would react very differently from like, why are my private investors getting cold outreach from this company that I use for some completely different purpose. So interesting sort of like crisis PR case study, I think. You know, I think in terms of reaction, I think they moved relatively quickly from my perspective. And I think it was like less than 24 hours from me seeing it to seeing kind of like the decision to exit the business. So, you know, I think that it was as handled as well as it could be. I think taking a step back, it's been no secret that Carter had for many years been planning to build out that sequential march from cap table management to fund administration to you know, the secondaries marketplace because they were public about that in their press releases, funding announcements, and their vision. So I think that it's an interesting dynamic, of course, because cap table is the largest slice of the business, but one of the lowest margins because there's so many competitors for cap table management. Fund admin is growing, growing pains because honestly, fund administration, there's less competitors, obviously, but it's a very complicated business. It's the so worst. Much so much work. And then actually secondaries marketplace was the smallest slice. That's what uh, the CEO said. But what was left unsaid was that it was the highest margin by far, right? Because all you're just doing is you're connecting two sides and then you collect a cut from both sides of the transaction. I think that was the big dream, frankly, uh, if you look at their strategic roadmap. Obviously, I think there's going to be other ways that they explore. I really like what the CEO kind of wrote and he said like, hey, you know, the decision was that at the end of the day, we had to represent customers and we're representing this case, the back office, cap table management for startups we're managing the back office for funds and we can't monetize half of it because it breaks the trust in the fundamental earlier products they have and that reminds me a lot actually of a very common issue that I often see in many startups because they often say something like okay we're going to build this product now and then we're going to use this user base to monetize their data and sell this to somebody else and you see this all the time and I think you see this a lot for example in AI companies I've met several AI companies over the past you know, six months and very much conversation okay we want to you know we want to, for example, service X profession, right? Whatever profession is like customer service or so, so forth. And then over time, we want to use that data. We're going to train up a model and then we're going to use it to create a super version of it that disrupts the profession that we're training them on, right? It's not wrong from a technical layer perspective because you, you want that data to train on the model that lets you create a super agent. But then the, the business model breaks out, breaks down because the best people in the profession will know that you're marching towards this. It's not an uncommon problem or strategic incoherence, I would say, between being a product for a persona versus monetizing the data and trying to create a layer of a marketplace or sell that data outside of that core customer. Totally. Anyway, exciting start to 2024. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave.